Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. So to start today, part four of The Light of the World, I need everyone to stand up, if you would. We are going to play a quick game of face-off. I don't know if you've ever played face-off before. We'll go ahead and bring the game up on the screen. We're going to play face-off, and we are going to, with face-off, we are going to eliminate people with different questions, not eliminate them permanently, but just from the game. We're going to eliminate different people from the game with their responses to the questions. And today's topic, or the subject of today's game called face-off, is Queen Elizabeth II. Now, if you know Queen Elizabeth II, or if you're familiar with her, you'll know that she has a lot of hobbies, and one of her favorite hobbies has to do with dogs. And she has some favorite, she has a favorite type of dog. In fact, during her reign, she's had over 30 of these types of dogs. Is it the English Cocker Spaniel, or is it a Corgi? Now, here's how the game works. Face-off works like this. If you think it's the English Cocker Spaniel, you're going to face this direction. Okay, go ahead and turn this direction if you think it's the English Cocker Spaniel. If you think it's corgis, you're going to face that direction. If you are still facing me when we bring the answer up on the screen, you are out. You'll be eliminated, okay, if you're still facing me. So go ahead and make your decision. Remember, folks, we're in church, so there's no cheating. Of all places to cheat, this is not the place, okay? So the answer to the question of her favorite type of dog is corgis. So if you are facing this direction for the English Cocker Spaniels, go ahead and take a seat. You have been eliminated from the game. And if you are participating in our first service, go ahead and take a seat as well so you can't cheat. All right. Now, Queen Elizabeth II, I don't know if you're aware of this fact, but she is the longest ruling monarch in the history of the royal family. There has been no other monarch that has had as long a reign as Queen Elizabeth II. It's a phenomenal thing. And she is coming up on a celebration in a couple of years, another jubilee celebration. Is it her platinum celebration jubilee or is it her diamond jubilee? If you think it's diamond, face that way. If you think it's her platinum jubilee, face this direction. If you're still facing me when we bring up the answer on the screen, you'll be eliminated from the game. All right, everybody's got their position. And the answer is, it is her platinum jubilee that is coming up in just two years. Two years from now, she'll be on the throne 70 years. Amazing thing. So when it comes to royalty, they have access to a lot of personal help, a lot of personal assistance. She has access to all sorts of personal help. But she has a unique personal assistant in one specific area. Is it a personal poet Or does she have a personal musician that writes music for her? Does she have a personal poet or a personal musician? Go ahead and take your stance. Personal poet this way, personal musician this way. All right, and the answer is, if you're still facing me, you get to sit down. The answer is a personal poet, okay? Now, the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, she was married during wartime, Her wedding happened during wartime, and things were really scarce at the time. And so she actually had to collect a number of coupons for something that happened during her wedding because they were rationing all sorts of things at that time of war. Which type of coupons did she have to collect for her wedding? Did she have to collect material coupons, like fabric coupons for her dress, 
Or did she have to collect food coupons for the reception so that people could eat? Which one did she have to collect? Was it food? Face that way. If you think it was material, face this way. All right? And the answer is material coupons. Okay. Now, she was married during wartime, and prior to her marriage, prior to her marriage, Ladies at that time, because of the war, were being trained in all sorts of skills to try and help out with the war effort. And the queen herself got training in one of these areas. Was it training to be a pilot, or was she trained to be a mechanic? Pilot or mechanic? Some people seem very confident. One man over here has no confidence whatsoever. He's still undecided. All right. Mechanic or pilot? The answer is... Mechanic, all right? It's got quite a few people still standing. This is great. Now, because she's royalty, she's been able to travel extensively across the world to a number of countries. In fact, over 100 countries around the world she's been able to visit in her lifetime. Has she visited 116 countries or 118 countries? Which do you think it is? 118 or 116? If you're still facing me when I bring it up on the screen, you'll have to sit down. The answer is 116 countries. Okay. Now remember, folks, we're in church, okay? So cheating, not a good, good idea in church, okay? Wrong place to be cheating. Now, because she's so overseeing so many countries and because she's got so much power and so on, she actually doesn't have to carry a certain type of document. It's amazing. She doesn't have to carry all the documents that we have to carry in order to get uh, to be able to do certain things. Is it a driver's license or is it a passport that she doesn't have to carry? Okay, some people are choosing driver's license. Some people are going with passport. Vince is not sure which way to go, but that's pretty much every day for Vince. So, All right, the answer is actually... It's both. She doesn't have to have both. So you're all eliminated. But Vince, Vince, I got a portrait of the queen just for you today because I was able to kind of make, take the mickey out of you. I got a portrait for you of the queen. Now, all of these unique facts, I learned about these from a number of biographies about the queen. In fact, I want to bring up a list of biographies about the queen on the screen. Anybody read any of these biographies on the Queen? Maybe that says something about our political leanings as a church, possibly. I don't know. But the Queen has gotten a number of people that have written biographies about her. Fascinating to me that each one of the authors of the biographies has their own unique perspective on the Queen's life. Like one particular biographer, one author, wrote about the Queen's life all from the perspective of her wardrobe. Everything to do with her clothing. That's how I found out about the whole coupons for the material to make her wedding dress. All from the perspective of her wardrobe. Some people are fascinated by the queen's marriage. And they've written about the, the queen and her husband. All of those biographies focused in on the queen's marriage. Other people, one of her nannies actually wrote a biography about the queen. And it detailed all of her early years as a child growing up. Some of the secrets that were revealed in that, actually that nanny was shunned from the royal family because of the biography and some of the secrets that she wrote into that. But each one of the authors tells a different perspective 
on the queen's life. And yet, we don't look at one biography and say, well, because you're missing the part about the queen collecting coupons so that she could get her wedding dress made, your biography, because you omitted that, isn't relevant and isn't accurate because you didn't put that in the story. We don't say that. We just say, no, that person wrote from a different perspective. And yet, oftentimes, when we look at the life of Jesus, people will look at the four different accounts of Jesus' life that we have available to us, the four different biographies that we have, and because somebody might miss a detail in this biography or maybe says something from a slightly different perspective, all of a the sudden they begin to wonder, are the facts really true about Jesus' life? And yet, all four of the authors of the biographies we have about Jesus were writing from their own perspective, and each of them will discover today, were writing with a specific purpose in mind as to why they even took the time to write about Jesus' life. We know these biographies not by a title like Queen Elizabeth II, the life story of the queen, or something like that, We actually know these biographies not by a title that was given to the stories, but by the author's names. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The authors probably could have better titled their biographies of Jesus' life, not with their own name. Seems a little pompous to write about a man like Jesus and then name the biography after yourself. Perhaps other people name these stories, but Matthew, for instance, I think a better name for his biography of Jesus probably would have been Jesus Proof that he really was the Messiah. That was Matthew's whole purpose in writing his biography about Jesus, was to prove, especially to a Jewish audience, that Jesus truly was the Messiah that the Jewish people had learned about all of their lives. And so he went to great lengths to try and prove, especially to Jewish people, that Jesus truly was the Messiah that the prophets had prophesied about hundreds, even thousands of years beforehand. Mark, on the other hand, I think his biography of Jesus' life would have been better titled, Jesus, His Ministry Years. Because when you look at Mark's biography, he skips over the birth of Jesus, he skips over his childhood, he dives straight into a guy named John the Baptist, and then he's off to the races and telling all the stories of the ministry that Jesus did. So Mark, his biography, I think better titled would have been, Jesus, His Ministry Years. Luke was kind of like, an aide or somebody that would come alongside the queen and they would give an accurate, detailed, chronological overview of the queen's life, that type of biography. Luke decided that he wanted to give an orderly account. He went around to all the eyewitnesses and he got all the stories and all the details about Jesus' life and then he put together an orderly, chronological account of Jesus' life, probably the best overview of all the biographies of Jesus' life is in the story that Luke told. And then John, John had an interesting take on the whole story of Jesus' life. Unlike the other three guys who wrote about Jesus very close to Jesus' life, John waited till the end of his life. He's an old man. The stories had, been, had happened 60, some of them 70 years prior. And John begins to write more of a memoir or a reflection of what Jesus' life was like. And really what John was after is the why behind the what and the how of Jesus' life playing out. That's why John wrote. Now when you look at all four of these guys and you put them together, you actually get a great overview of Jesus' life. Now this morning we're going to take a look at the Christmas story, which if you look in Matthew, Matthew records the birth of Jesus. 
If you look at Mark, like I said before, he skips over all of that, dives straight into Jesus' ministry. Luke probably gives the most detailed account, not just of Jesus' life, but of the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus, which is why, even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard the Christmas story at some time in your life. Even if you're not a Christian or a Bible person, probably the story that you heard, the Christmas story, came from the account that Luke has given. It's the most popular one. And then John... Interestingly enough, he doesn't describe Jesus' birth in detail like Matthew or Luke does, but he does refer to the Christmas story in kind of an unusual way, more in a way that describes why the Christmas story is so important, not all the details of how the Christmas story unfolded. Listen to the way that John describes Christmas. He says, the word, meaning God, that's who he was talking about, became flesh. So God's up in heaven, but he decided at a point in time in history that he would become humanity. He would become flesh. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time when God became man in the person of Jesus and he made his dwelling among us. In other words, John's saying, hey, Jesus made himself a man. God made himself a man in the person of Jesus and he actually came out of heaven and he set up house with humanity. It's he, the, the words that John is using would literally be described as Jesus came and camped out, temporarily set up home with humanity. That's how John describes Christmas. Then he goes on in another part of this description. He says it this way. He says, the true light, speaking of Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, describing Christmas. The light of the world at Christmas time was coming into the world so that everyone would be able to see things they've never seen before, they'd be able to understand things they've never understood before, so that people could have a relationship with God like they'd never had before. See, John, although he doesn't write the details of the Christmas story for us in his biography, John had a very specific purpose as to why he wrote the story of Jesus. And here's the reason why he wrote it. John wanted us all to know that we could have a personal God. That was the whole point of why John wrote his biography of Jesus. So that every single person who would ever read the story that John wrote would know, you can actually know a personal God. Now let me ask you a question about the queen just for a moment. We'll go back to the queen. Let me ask you this really simple question. What would it take for you to believe the queen cares about you personally? Not just the people of the Commonwealth. I mean, we all know that, yeah, she cares about the people of Canada and Australia and New Zealand and England and other parts of the Commonwealth. We know that she cares about the people in the Commonwealth, but what would it take for you personally to believe that the Queen of England cared about you personally? Some of you might say, well, it would take her writing me a letter when I turn 100 and personally signing it for me. Well, maybe not personally signing it, but they print her signature at the bottom of the letter. That would be enough for me to know at least somehow, some way, the queen knew that I turned 100 years old. Maybe that would be enough for you. For me, I'll tell you what would be enough. What would it take for the queen of England to prove that she cares about me personally? If she showed up at my house, knocked on the door this Christmas, and said, Jason, 
I want to cover the cost of your entire Christmas celebration for you and your family this year. In that moment, I would know that the queen doesn't just care about the people of the commonwealth. In that moment, I would know that the queen cares about me personally. If she knocked on the door and said, Jason, Merry Christmas, I want to cover the cost of your entire Christmas celebration. In that moment, I'd say she cares about me personally. So let me ask you this question that John might ask. What would it take for you to believe that there's a God who loves you personally? Not just there's a God that loves the world or loves the people of the commonwealth or loves the people on the planet, but what would it take for God to prove to you that he loves you and cares for you personally? John, I think, answers that question as he describes the Christmas story in his own way. He says, to all who did receive him, speaking about Jesus. And maybe he paused at this moment because that phrase, to all who did receive him, is somewhat confusing. Because how do you receive a baby that was born in a manger 2,000 years ago? How do, you, how do you do that in 2019? Or maybe how do you receive... Jesus that died on a cross. How do, you, how do you receive something that you don't even know personally? And so I think it, in a way, John goes on to further describe. Here's what I mean by, for all of those who received him, or to those who believed in his name. Now, John does something in this verse that's never been done before in all of Greek literature. This is so important. Don't miss this. In all of Greek literature, up to this time, this phrase, believed in, has never been used before. It's like John introduced a brand new phrase into the common language of the time. I recently learned about a brand new phrase that people are using these days, and the phrase is simply this, okay, boomer. Some of you know exactly what okay, boomer means. And if you don't know what it means, find a millennial or someone younger than that, and they will explain to you, What is okay, boomer? John, in a very real sense, uses a phrase in the Greek language for the very first time that's never been used before. He takes this little word, believe, pistuo in the Greek, which means not just to believe that something happened or believe that Jesus existed or believe that the Queen of England exists, but it means to actually put your trust, confidence, hopes, dreams your entire life into that person's care. It's like me sitting on this stool and saying, I believe that the stool exists, and the difference between believing that the stool exists and actually putting my hope and confidence and trust in the stool to hold up my life, that's what John's talking about. He says to all the people that receive him better than that, To everyone who believes in his name, puts all their hope and confidence and trust and dreams in the person of Jesus. To those people, God gave the right to become children of God. Talk about a personal God. To those people that put all their hope, all their dreams, all their confidence, all their trust in the person of Jesus, that believing in gives you the opportunity to know God personally like a child. Incredible, incredible truth. John goes on at the end of his biography of Jesus' life to summarize exactly why he wrote the whole story. 
He says it in these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are actually not recorded in this biography. It's almost as if John is saying, hey, Matthew, he recorded some stuff that I didn't include. Mark recorded some stuff. Luke recorded some stuff about the birth of Jesus that you'll never read in my biography. But let me tell you why I wrote these specific words in my biography. These are written that you may believe that same word that he used before, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote his gospel. That's why John wrote his biography of Jesus. So John is all about why Christmas happened. He's all about the why, because we need to know that we can have a personal savior, John would say. That's why I wrote my biography. I want you to know you can have a personal savior. And I want you to know how you can have a personal savior. And I think John, if he were here today, he would simply ask this question. He would say, so with all of that being said, do you believe? Not believe that Jesus existed, not believe that he was born in a manger and he died on a cross and yeah, he rose again from the dead. Not believe that Jesus existed, but have you actually decided to believe in him? Put all your hope, all your confidence, all your trust in Jesus alone. Matthew and Luke tell us not why, but they go on to help us understand what happened and how it happened. That was Matthew and Luke's idea of writing their biographies of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to quickly just read for you the Christmas story Because I'm convinced that some people can even get through the whole Christmas season, wind up on Boxing Day watching the test match, which I'll be doing on Boxing Day, and have never read the Christmas story. It's possible. You could get through the whole Christmas season and think back, wait a second, did I even read the Christmas story this year? So today, I want to take a look at both Luke and Matthew's account, weave them together so we get a great understanding of the Christmas story. Luke starts out the Christmas story with these words. He says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. See what Luke was doing when he wrote his biography? See all the details that he puts in the story? If I was writing the biography, I would have just said, there was a guy named Joseph and his engaged girlfriend Mary, and I don't know where David's family was from, but... There's some detail that Luke gives us because he wants us to have an accurate account of Jesus' life. He goes on to say the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. And I love this phrase that he says. The angel says to her, The Lord is with you. Imagine for a second. Just go back in time. You're a 14 or 15-year-old girl. And an angel shows up to speak to you. Don't even imagine you're 14 or 15 years old back in time. Imagine it's 2019 and you're 43 years old and an angel shows up to speak to you. Are you kidding? And then the angel says this powerful phrase, the Lord is with you. Can you imagine what Mary is going through at this moment? We don't have to imagine because Luke tells us what she's doing. Mary, he says, was greatly troubled, as would all of us would be if an angel showed up and started speaking to us. 
She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, angels show up in the Christmas story over and over again. And here's one of the things you'll notice. They always start out with the exact same phrase because everyone they come to has the exact same reaction that all of us would have. They all freak out. So the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid. Because we would all freak out if an angel showed up to speak to us. And each angel in the story starts with, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, this word Jesus that we so often hear and we're so, uh, it's so much a part of our common language wouldn't actually have been the word or the name that Mary heard from the angel. Jesus is an English version of Jesus' name. And if you go back through all the translations, before we got to English, there was the Latin. Before the Latin, there was the Greek. Before the Greek, the angel actually probably would have spoken to Mary in Hebrew because that's what she spoke. And in Hebrew, Jesus' name is Yeshua because there is no J in the English language, sorry, in the Hebrew language, much like in the Spanish language. You would never go to a Spanish-speaking church or in a Spanish-speaking part of the world and hear the name Jesus. You would hear them say, Jesus. And so Mary, in that moment, would have heard the angel say to her, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Yeshua, which immediately Mary would have thought, the great hero of the Old Testament, Joshua. That's who Jesus was named after, Joshua. And immediately Mary would have thought, this is going to be a great person if we're going to name him after the great hero of the faith, Joshua. Luke goes on. The angel said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Imagine Mary. Are you kidding? I'm going to have a son who's going to be like the hero Joshua, but yet his kingdom is never going to end? Imagine Mary in that moment. Now let's change gears and take a look at Matthew's biography of the same Christmas story. Matthew also talks about an angel at the beginning of his story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Remember, Matthew's whole point in writing the biography about Jesus is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. This is how it all came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found, she was found out to be pregnant because they weren't even married. They were just engaged. And so this would have been a horrible thing for Mary to be found out in her culture, to be pregnant before she was married. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us the response that Joseph has to this news. Because Joseph, her husband, was a faithful man, faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Back then, an engagement was just like a marriage. You weren't engaged and hopefully you get to the altar. You were engaged and you were planning to get married. And so he, in his mind, thought, I've got to be faithful to the law, but I don't want to disgrace my engaged wife, engaged to be wife. And so I'm going to quietly divorce her so that we don't make a scene. And then an angel comes to Joseph. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, because we're all freaking out if an angel shows up to us. 
Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Yeshua because he will save his people immediately. Joseph would have thought, of course he's going to save his people because that's what Joshua did. Joshua saved his people. Joshua was a military hero in the Old Testament. The Jewish people all knew about the military prowess of Joshua. But then the angel says, he will save his people from their sin. At which Joseph would have maybe thought, are you kidding? We we don't need saving from our sin. We've got a great system to do that down at the temple. We go every week and take care of our sins down there. We need saving from the Romans who are oppressing us. That's what we need right now. And yet Joseph hears the angel say to him, you'll call him Yeshua and he will save his people not from the Romans but from something far greater than that. He will save his people from their sins. So Joseph responds to the angel. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, which I think if any angel showed up to any one of us today, we would do whatever it is they told us to do. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He took Mary home as his wife. And then the part of the story that so many of us know so well, in those days, Caesar Augustus, who was Octavius, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, he became the first emperor, first king of Rome. And so because he was the first ever king of Rome, he wanted to know how many subjects he had in his kingdom. So he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register Mary with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And when they got there, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. And then Luke tells us about the most unlikely characters who entered the Christmas story. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord, here comes the angel again, appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were freaked out like all of us would be. But what do you think the angel said to the shepherds? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Don't freak out. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The most unlikely characters, these shepherds, had no business being the heroes of the story to carry the message of Christmas to everyone in the world. And yet God chose these dirty, filthy, smelly shepherds who wouldn't have even been able to go to the temple because they were unclean. He chose the shepherds to tell the Christmas story. Today, they told, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, of which all the shepherds would have said, ah, a manger, finally, something that we know and is common to us. And then, suddenly, A great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I love that phrase, let's go see what has happened, because our faith as followers of Jesus is not based on some fiction, some fable, some Christmas story that perhaps might have happened. No, no, no. The shepherds said, let's go see what has actually happened. A historical event had taken place and the shepherds wanted to go see it. So they hurried off, Luke tells us, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. My favorite part of the Christmas story, Luke wraps up this section with some powerful words. And all the ladies in the room lean in close in this part of the story because they know exactly what Mary would have been feeling. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Not just in that night, not just in the next few days or weeks, but Mary for the rest of her life would have thought about over and over and over and over again those moments of the first Christmas. In fact, I'm convinced that Mary, at the foot of the cross, watching her 33-year-old son dying for the sins of the world, would have been pondering and treasuring those times in her heart. I'm convinced that Mary, running to the empty grave three days later when Jesus rose again from the dead, would have looked into the empty grave and pondered and treasured all of these things in her heart. And then when Jesus said to John at the foot of the cross, see my mother Mary, I want you to take her and she should become your mother, care for her. I'm sure that throughout the rest of their lives, Mary told the stories over and over again to John, which is why John was able to summarize the whole story in one simple statement. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I know because Mary's told me the story so many times that whoever believes in, he uses that phrase that he created. Not whoever believes that there's a queen or believes that Jesus existed. No, 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 it's bigger than that. Whoever puts all their confidence and trust and hope in Jesus, in that moment, they will receive they will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And then John goes on to say it further with a verse that is not as common, probably haven't memorized this one. He says, for Jesus, for God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world. But the whole point of Christmas, John would say if he were here today, guys, the whole point, Jesus came at Christmas not to condemn you but to save you, not from the Roman Empire, but from something we all need saving from. The fact that we don't reach God's standards, we don't even reach our own standards. Forget God's standards. We don't reach our own standards. We don't meet up to the things we say we want to do. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. So let me ask you the question one more time. What would it take for God to prove to you that he doesn't just love the whole world, but he loves you personally, 
what would it take? Would it take him showing up at your door this Christmas, knocking on the door and saying, Merry Christmas, Jason, I've covered the whole cost for you. Because that's exactly what God did. He showed up not just this Christmas, but he shows up every single day saying, hey, Merry Christmas, I've covered the entire cost for you. Jesus came to mend this world, to mend your world, not to condemn it. And that's the real story of Christmas. Father, thank you for giving us four biographies of Jesus' life that all work together to tell us this one central truth that you loved us, not just the world, but you loved us personally, so much so that you sent your son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for us, to be buried, to raise himself again from the dead three days later, and by simply believing not that he existed, but by believing in him, we can have a personal relationship with you. We thank you for this incredible truth this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.